I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, you're very welcome to this week's podcast, Twilight of the Ascendancy. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and this week's podcast is focusing in on the period of Irish history, which is now sadly gone, and that is the old Irish landowning families who have now lost their lifestyle and many of the big houses have vanished from the landscape. And to tell this story, I've selected four excerpts from interviews made with women who lived in the big house and they give a first-hand account of what life was like in the big house. So I've selected four houses and the first one is Ballymaloo House in East Cork. I remember sitting up in the nursery. We'd all been sort of had our bath and we were having our supper and we were going to go to bed. And my father came in and he had a car at this stage, a Citroen, I remember. And he came in and he said, do you know I got the whole way to Cork and back and I never had a single puncture. Dramana Castle in County Waterford. The government is what ruined all these places. They wanted to get rid of the ascendancy in those days. Now they're sad that they have. But they wanted to get rid of the big places in the 50s. Rye Court in West Cork. The house was burnt in 1921. It was very hard because there was, there was no house. There was no stock on the place. And... Kappa House in County Waterford. My mother had a, a Morris Cowley, I think, with a, a dickey. And I remember going to, down to the Strand and so on in the dickey. Mm. So let's get started. Ballymaloo House, situated in East Cork, is now a well-known country house hotel. It was bought by the Allens in 1948. But before that, the Simpsons lived there and Helen Morgan grew up in that house. And she describes here the way life was in that house. So I'm here in Carrigaline and I'm talking to Helen Morgan. That's right, yes. And your maiden name was Simpson. Mm-hmm. And where were you brought up? Well, I, we came over to Ireland in 1923. My father was instructed he had to come. It was the last uncle of us, last... Litchfield uncle died and my father was told it was his duty to come over and look after the Palamaloo for the old aunts and unfortunately 
he was the sort of person who did his duty and he came over, which was the greatest mistake he ever made because he was a trained mechanical engineer. My mother was an exceptionally intelligent woman. She was a university graduate and that sort of thing. They came over as, well, Daddy came over as manager of Ballamaloo. Did he have many employed? We had 14 men on the farm and three people in the house. And and in the farm then, was it was it dairy farming or was it a tillage? Mixed farming. Um, we had a very, very good herd of um, pedigree dairy shorthorns. That was Daddy's one one real hate of, of Devalera was that he um, wanted to buy a new bull for his pedigree shorthorns, but he wasn't allowed to buy a double dairy one. D- David said, no, you, 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 they, they mustn't bring any more bulls in from, from Scotland, where they all came from. You must have the uh, dual-purpose shorthorns. So, I mean, the, the herd went to, you know... And, 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 so and the herd went the down. Of yes, mm. of course. So, yeah, you can imagine the frustration and the annoyance yes. of, of and the And then, of course, thing. we had that ridiculous, there was that ridiculous ruling uh, about pigs that you weren't to hold, keep any pig in Ireland mm. except the large white. And the others, you weren't allowed to sell them, you weren't allowed to give them away. And you weren't allowed, then if you had them... It was sort of what you do with them. I mean, you were supposed to just chop their heads off, I think. But I, my husband, who was who was a barrister, among other things, he um, said that it was a big joke in the law library. He was they, they were talking about sort of things one time, and someone at the one of the old fellows said, "Well, you know what happened about pigs?" In the, in the uh, somebody wrote up and said, "What can we do with our pigs?" And the answer they got was shave a little bit of its head, of its skin, put a stamp on it and send it to the Department of Agriculture in Dublin. <laughs> uh, so in, in the, 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 I'm sure you had to keep a sense of humour, though, as well. Well, I mean, I was too young for, yes. for to know that. I've only heard these things afterwards, remember. Of course, yeah. But uh, these stories that came down to you from mm. your parents, did, did they... They must have told you about the, um, uh, you know, other things that went on in the in in the locality. They didn't really. They didn't. I mean, I think they didn't want to sort of upset us. You know what I mean? Mm. Didn't want to. Up- we got on very well with everyone round. You know. Oh, was there many of you? Well, my my my. Um, they had two children after they came to Belmaloo which, of course, was a tremendous insult to the aunts. I, my mother told me, well, I mean, I shouldn't say this to you. Why, why is that now? Yes. Well, my mother said when she, they discovered that my, my mother, my mother told me, when they discovered that she was pregnant with my next sister, they had her in. They said, we didn't expect you to behave like that in our house. So they were, <laughs> they were oh, they were oh, they different. were you that sp- old believe you me, they were spinsters, really, and very nicely brought up. Ah, yes, I mean they didn't talk about, they wouldn't say anything 
about a bull. A bull was the animal. And the male sheep. And my father used to, uh, we used to, uh, a lot of the ploughing horses were Irish draft mares. And they used to, they, he used to breed a lot of them for actually the Irish jumping team. Mm-hmm. And which meant that they had to be sent off to be serviced by um, a thoroughbred, thoroughbred horse. And um, the aunts could never understand why the lady horses went on holidays and the men didn't. But I mean, whether they didn't understand, yes. whether they didn't know, or they pretended they didn't know, I wouldn't know. They were very conservative, so... Conservative, wasn't they? They, they, they invented the, the word conservatism, I think. They'd been educated by a governess. They'd never been to school. They did nice little watercolours, and they could play Dear Ken John Peel on the, tele, on the piano, and that was it. They could read. Mm. Their writing was atrocious. I mean, you've just no idea how how narrowly they were brought up. I mean, they certainly, certainly Aunt Caroline, the elder one, was a very intelligent woman, but she was very, very deaf. I mean, we were brought up on the end of a... If you, have you ever seen a hearing funnel? They stuck it in, your, in their ear and they sort of pro, pushed it towards you and you talked into this. Sort of a trumpet thing, hearing trumpet was called. Very much the Victorian days, wasn't it? They they were Victorians. And did they dress like that? They did. Long dresses. Long black dresses down. I mean, when I remember when Aunt Aunt Myra was 63 when we got to Ireland. And I can remember her as an old woman, a very old woman, grey hair and a bun at the back, you know, black. Uh, black blouse, black cardigan, long blacks. uh, Her skirt would have been sort of six inches up off the floor. Mm. And that was at age 63. And I remember her saying, run upstairs, darling, you know my old legs can't. (laughs) You know? And she'd have been in her 60s. Yes, I suppose uh, if you're brought up in that way, uh, you know you what you, see you, the, you're, you don't get a chance to to explore yes. to see anything. The other Aunt Caroline had been engaged to be married. They'd bought the house. I've seen the house, but somebody said something to my great grandfather that uh, the man had that she was engaged to had. Oh, he must have got a maiden trouble or something, you know. Something sexual anyway, undoubtedly. And he just broke the engagement. And that was it? That was it. He said, you're not going to... I I won't allow you to marry him. But... I mean, it's... it's, It was was of its time, because I'm just imagining... But it was not only of its time, but it was before its time. It was worse than of its time. They were worse, they were more restricted mm-hmm. than a lot of their contemporaries. How did they see the outside world, the, 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 the local people? Did they mix in any way with them? Or? They had their certain friends. Mm-hmm. 
they thought it was simply dreadful. We used to go out and play with the children on the farm, you know. Well, that was dreadful. Mm-hmm. That was simply terrible. You never can tell what might happen, you know. <laughs> so, but that generation and and that time and 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 that way, you were walled in, uh, and, oh, walled and and in and you, it, yes. you felt you were a prisoner within the wall rather we than. We didn't feel we were a prisoner. That was the way things were. Mm-hmm. And of course, to to travel to go anywhere into Cork City and that oh, that, that that was a day out. Well, it was certainly a day out. I remember sitting up in the nursery. We'd all been sort of had our bath and we were having our supper and we were going to go to bed. And my father came in and he had a car at this stage, a Citroen, I remember. And he came in and he said, do you know I got the whole way to Cork and back and I never had a single puncture. (laughs) Well, the roads would have been very rough. I remember, I can remember going up to Cork and there was... I mean, you would get to a place where there'd be two little men with hammers at the side of the road breaking the stones, and the whole, whole, sort of, about a hundred yards would be covered with uh, ro- just broken, broken stones. stones, and then they'd cut sods at the side of the road and put it over the stones, and the traffic could could get over that. Yeah. The, the traffic could work it in. I can yeah. remember that. This was the making of roads, my goodness. Meddling yeah. of roads. I can yeah. remember, I remember the men. Mm. And I, I mean, there was a man that lived near near us. His name was Bukalon. Don't know what his other name was, but he was always known as Bukalon. And he used to, he was a, a road a road man. Mm. And he broke stones at the side of the road. My do you remember in the hot you know, summer days the, the the dust off the off those roads? Oh, I can indeed. But you see, if we ca- we came home three times a year from on holidays, and we didn't weren't didn't go to Cork unless we had to go to the dentist. So mm. you probably went up twice in the holidays. O- otherwise, you were staying at home. You, otherwise, the, the, you stayed at home. Yes. But yes. you see, we. There was a few people round that used to come. We used to play tennis. Mm. We had a very good tennis court, which is still at Baramaloo. And we used to go down to the beach, um, down to Shandigarry Beach swimming, and, you know, that sort of thing. It wasn't a bad life. Mm. And did you spend time riding or were you out uh, hunting or oh, gosh, did you do no. any of that? But there was no money, you see. Mm-hmm. My father had no, no individual money for spending on things like that. Mm-hmm. What he had, my mother bought wool with and lengths of cotton so that she could make dresses and, mm-hmm. you know. And every penny was counted for, was it? It had to be. We, I, we used time. to go to one dance a year. Uh, when by the time I, when I was about 16 it started, you see, um, the Ballycotton Lifeboat Dance, mm. which was the big entertainment. It was cost five shillings. I see. And you got dressed up into a long dress. And, I mean, it was the entertainment of the year. And what was it called? The, the Ballycotton Lifeboat Dance. I see. Oh, was that in O'Brien's Hotel? No, it wasn't. It was in the. It was in the. 
over over the garage, a place over the garage. I see. And who played? Major Watt. He was the he was the huntsman of the United Hunt, and he had a band, and he used to play for charities. Oh, you must have fond memories of those days. Oh, I have. They were were fun. But um, lots of memories of them. But, I mean, oh, it was different. Emily Villiers-Stewart, here just outside Capaquin, in one of the most beautiful estates uh, around the area. Just tell me about the name. And how it came about. Well, originally they were the Fitzgeralds who were descended from the Earls of Desmond. And there was a girl only who then married a Villas. And then, after a good many generations, again there was a daughter only and no son, and she married a Stuart. And that's how it became Villiers Stuart. Uh, and this is the tower house of the old Desmond Castle, at the base of it. And the top was rendered unsafe in the 1640 rebellion. It was built about approximately 1200. And the same family has been here all the time. And uh, in the 1640 rebellion, the, they fought over it for seven years. The rebels got in and the other side got in and it was completely destroyed at the top. So they pulled the top down and they decided possibly the warring days weren't quite so bad and they would build a house going uh, west-east, which is what we've just walked through now to get here. And, and according to Smith's history of Waterford, until a more commodious house could be built. And the more commodious house was up there, and that was the Georgian house, which was very, very large and impressive. And that was, in fact, pulled down, I can't remember, I think 64-65, And we're right, we're on the shores of, of the Blackwater here. Yes, right above the, the Blackwater. Yes. So this would have been a, a, an important... Uh, well, it was a very important stronghold. It was The, the reason uh, the Fitzgerald family came here was because it, it's built, as you can see, on the bend of the river. So you could see down to the south that way and you could see up to the north that way and you could see the enemy coming or whatever was happening. And um, so it was a, a very, very strong fortress and, as you can see, it's very high above the river. Well, down in the garden, there's a thing that's known as the bastion, which is where we can actually make access to the river because you couldn't go up and down the steep ground here. And so it's easier to get at the river from further down the garden. So your ancestors have been living here for how long now in total? Well, approximately since the 1200s. That's a long time. It is a long time. My... Two daughters who were born here uh, were the 21st generation of the family. And now I'm a great-grandmother, <laughs> so there's two more. <laughs> I mean, was there a time when, uh, in in the 50s, that it, it, it became run down and it was difficult? To oh, it was run down long before that. It had been... The, the real trouble was that um, the land acts took land off these estates and that made them uneconomic. And uh, because they didn't have enough uh, 
to produce things from the land to carry the number of people they employed, the upkeep of everything that had to be kept up, you know, whether it was roads, avenues. I mean, where you came in from the bridge, it, this is halfway, half of the avenue. Well, keeping that road up and then the same on again alone was quite an expensive job. And the the Land Commission, the, the, uh, was there any Well, we eventually sold to the Land Commission. We had great... They didn't really want to buy it. Uh, they paid us £28 an acre. You know what land makes now? And and the the, the logistics of that. So as soon as they got the land, they mm. had to... Uh, well, they rented it for a number of years, uh, not too long, and got their money back in rent, and then they divided it into different farms, and those houses you see just at the top here, there's four houses, belong to the four farmers who now own the land. And were, were these people originally working here? No, they weren't at all. They were brought from up, up some more, more hill land, as you might say, down to better land. And who are the family names? Um, there's the, the Cullinans... Uh, the O'Brien's, the Nugent's, and the Cattles. And did you watch them settling down? Or, uh, no, were we were well away when, when, when the Land happened. Commission did this, yeah. Uh, the, I, I just, uh, to understand more about the, the time that you mm. had to leave here, mm. um, it, it doesn't make sense that, you know, the, the, you were working away uh, with... James on mm. the farm and trying to rear a family and mm. to try and run the farm. I mean, wh- wh- why didn't you stay with us? Why didn't you stick we, with we, us? We couldn't afford to pay the rates. The rates were thousands of pounds in those days on the property. The government is what ruined all these places. They wanted to get rid of the ascendancy in those days. Now they're sad that they have, but they wanted to get rid of the big places in the 50s. They were only too happy to pull them down. There was a beautiful stable yard just over there for 28 horses and two very nice houses, uh, one at each end of the building and a, a yard inside. And when the Land Commission divided the land up, they scratched their heads and said, mm, it wouldn't be fair to give these beautiful buildings to one farmer so we better pull them down. And they did. I'm talking to Rosalie Tonson Rye and he, here in Rye Court in in, um, in 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 amongst the trees. It it's an amazing place. It's mm. a lovely place. It's a lovely old place. So talk to me about Rye Court. All this land around here belonged to a man called Captain Bailey, and he lived in the castle, Castle Moor, which is about half a mile from here. And he had two sons, which are those old paintings over there, and they were drowned as children in the River Bride. Oh. And his his daughter inherited Rycourt and married a Rye. Oh, what, what that would be back the, in uh, yes. that, the, the, the house in Rycourt was built in about 1700. There's a sundial just uh, just there in the garden, and the date on that is 1702. 
the place came to my father by a tail. He was the son of the second son when he was only nine. Hmm. And his mother had remarried and was living in England. And the house was empty when it was burnt. My father was only only 20, and my mother, my father was about 25 or something, and they got, immediately he was 21, he got married and they came here. And it was very, it was very hard because there was, there was no house. Mm. There was no stock on the place. And they built a little bungalow further on down the avenue. They, they, um, he, he was very keen on horses, and he trained racehorses quite successfully. Right. Now, so in fact, it was during the, the Troubles, the house was burnt down. The house down. was burnt in 1921. And you were, and at the time, there wasn't anybody living there. But no, because... Who, who had been living in the house? His um, grandfather, and then, you see, they, his grandfather and uncle... The eldest, there were three Rye brothers. Uh, the eldest brother wasn't wasn't married, and he inherited Vine and Taylor from his father. And when he died, my father's father had predeceased him. He died of the black flu in 1919. He's buried in Marseilles. He never got back from the first war, and it it came to my father, Vine and Taylor. When he was a young lad, he, he was, was nine. Only, yes, the so Rycourt. How many acres of land uh, is in this estate? Well, when my father inherited it, because you see, all the farms went in the land acts, and when my, there was a certain amount of it woodland, and there was a big bog. Where the I saw in the Reader's Digest, funny enough, the last fox in the British Isles was killed in Rycourt Bog. <laughs> it's just about half a mile away. I, he had about when he actually first came back, he had about seven hundred acres, but a lot of it would, would be woodland and this about one hundred and twenty acres is bog, hmm. and there'd be I suppose there'd be. 250, 300 acres of arable land. What year did he come back to Rycourt? 1931. And when he... The Economic War. Yes, just, yeah. And the the Land Commission, had he dealings with the Land Commission? No, no. No, the Land Commission never... Or or prior to that, the congested districts? Prior to that, in, I think, about 19... Around about 1900, it was 4,000 acres. Uh, Mm. And then the... Fountain, the Land Commission. Who who were the tenants? Uh, the names, the family names. Would you have any idea who they were? That that was given to my great grandfather uh, on his marriage from the tenants, and they were. Well, he wasn't a tenant. John Can- Cannon Foley, P.P. P.O. Keefe, M.D. He must have been the doctor. John Barry Murphy. Charles Harrod, William Harold. Um, they must have been the tenants of it. No. My father was an only son, and I'm an only daughter. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. yes. 
So you're the last in the I'm line the last of, of, of the, the ride. <laughs> so I'm here in Kappa. I'm here in Kappa House, uh, just outside Kappa Quinn, um, uh, one of the most beautiful estates in, in this area. And it's a place which um, Lady Staples, you grew up in, um, your maiden name being Usher. Um, so, what? I mean, I'd, I'd like to start really by asking you um, your earliest memories. You know, growing up here in in, in this yeah. this wonderful place. What? How far back can you go? My earliest memory is being pushed through a skylight in Kappa House to watch uh, an eclipse of the sun by David Buxton, my second cousin. 29 or 30, yes. And so the, um, what was the, the house like then? I mean, did, can you describe uh, who was living in the house? Uh, uh, my grandfather and grandmother, uh, Emily Horsley Usher and Beverly Grant. And uh, my father and mother were living in the Giant's Rock, which was um, at the top of the Kilcannon Road, at the back of the house, and it was built as a shooting lodge in the estate, I think, by my great-grandfather, I presume. And did you... Uh, your grandparents, so you would have obviously remembered them very well growing up with them then? I, I, do, I remember them as, as elderly folk there, yes. Uh, I remember my grandmother reading to me on the sofa tales of empire and uh, tales of uh, the farmyard and so on. Uh, I've still got a rug that I used to put over my knees when she read to me <laughs> in the morning room. Uh, and could... Could you describe your grandfather? Uh, My grandfather was a classical scholar and um, he was a, um, a school inspector in Lahore in, in India, at, I think at that time, before he came to Kappa. And... Uh, he, was, yes. he and my father were uh, very different characters. My father was more interested in Ireland than the Irish language, and uh, he used to follow the ploughman around, in, uh, picking up Irish folklore tales from him, which he put into a couple of books of Irish folklore, which, um, I don't know, they haven't been translated, so I doubt if they're very much read. Um, Tom Murray, he was the ploughman here, I think some of the Murray family still work for the Chivasas, some of his uh, son and grandson. And your mother's maiden name was? Was Whitehead. And she was from Nina in Tipperary, and her father was a railway engineer, and she came here to be a companion to my grandmother, uh, and she came with a friend who did the secretarial work for my grandfather. They came over as a pair, I think. Gladys Burden. And um, then she married the son of the house. 
So she came in with fresh blood from outside, which was a jolly good idea, I think. And she was uh, a very uh, straightforward person, I think, and she dealt very well with the uh, IRA and the black and tans and whoever turned up at the door. I think she poured oil on troubled waters very often. And uh, I think the... um, Black and Tans came and stayed in the house for a while, and luckily they had just left before the other side arrived, so they didn't meet on the doorstep. Mm. But there is a a bullet hole in the front door, which we've just had a look at. It's still there, and I don't know who made that hole. (laughs) But uh, Mm. I think um, my mother probably uh, sort of diffused the situation very often. How did she do that? I think she had a devilish sense of humour, really. <laughs> it was the most obvious thing. Mm. But uh, she sort of um, perhaps didn't take sides. I'd, I'd, she just... Uh, and then my father was a bit of a pacifist. He didn't uh, really want to agitate the situation. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that my grandfather could have been rather tactless about things, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I was far too small then to know what was... And my mother had a a Morris Cowley, I think, with a a dickie. And I remember going down to the Strand and so on in the dickie. I do remember... I wouldn't call them coaches, but uh, there was a pony and trap, uh, one of the uh, ones with the door at the back. What do you call them? Yeah, yeah. And we had one of those with a seat up each side. What do you call them? They were sidecars. And, uh, I uh, remember I, as a child I used to lap out the back and pick the strawberries, the wild strawberries on the road and then catch it up again later on so that we can't <laughs> have gone very fast. well we've come to the end of this week's podcast and you've been listening to Helen Morgan Emily Villiers-Stewart Rosalie Thompson-Rye and Lady Staples I hope you enjoyed listening and if you'd like to listen to the full interviews they're available on our website that's www.irishlifeandlore.com I'm Maurice O'Keefe and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.